and welcome to Conversing with Nature, a podcast of the Nature-Based Exchange. I'm your host, Liz Fly, with the Nature Conservancy in South Carolina. On each episode, I sit down with an expert or enthusiast who talks about their experiences with nature and passes along some of the best practices that nature has taught them over the years. Through these conversations, we rediscover nature and discover ways that we can apply nature's wisdom to the obstacles we currently face in South Carolina and beyond. Today, I am joined by Keith Bowers, the founder and president of Biohabitats. Biohabitats is a multidisciplinary, mission-driven organization focused on conservation planning, ecological restoration, and regenerative design. Keith has been a leader in landscape-scale restoration and site-specific nature-based design projects for decades, addressing issues from biodiversity loss to climate change impacts to environmental injustices. So Keith, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, Liz, it's so great to be here. Thanks. Well, I want to kind of start on on a personal note um, and just tell me a little bit about your connection with nature. You know, what do you recall as one of your earliest or fondest memories of nature? Jeez. I'd have to think back that I was fortunate enough that my family owned a beach house and off the coast of Maryland and uh, traveling down to the Chesapeake Bay and then over to the beach and sort of experiencing the ocean and the beach environment was something that is still ingrained in me to this day. And then after that, I uh, decided to get into mountain climbing. So I went from the beach to the mountains. And I think both of those experiences really gave me a sense of awe about nature, sort of the vast expanse of the ocean and that wilderness within the ocean. And then also the mountains and the terrain of the mountains and the all of the landscape and and um, everything associated with it. Yeah, you realize kind of how how small you are in this giant network of an ecosystem, right? right, right. Yeah. How do those experiences kind of connect to what you do now? Yeah, you know, so I think that my mind was always trying to find a way to get back to that feeling of of sort of being in all of nature and when I started searching around for college, I started looking at different programs and landscape architecture came up as one program. This is back in the late 70s, early 80s, that maybe uh, could set me on that path. But I think what really did was there was a, um, a professor, uh, Dr. Edgar Garbish, who came down from Minnesota to the Chesapeake Bay back in the early 70s and decided that he was going to give up his academic career and begin thinking about how to restore marshes in the Chesapeake Bay. And he started a nonprofit called Environmental Concern. And back then, uh, the, the whole concept of ecological restoration was really still not an academic discipline and still wasn't really practiced uh, throughout the world. And Dr. Garbish was one of the pioneers in coastal wetland restoration or became one of the pioneers. And I found out about Dr. Garbish and went and visited with him a few times. And he sort of became my mentor in terms of, hey, maybe there's a way to repair nature, to fix nature from all the impacts that are happening to it. And so I really began to think about how could I steer my landscape architecture background into ecological restoration and restoration ecology. I was going to ask, you know, you mentioned the Chesapeake Bay, and certainly that's kind of a, has been a great example of degradation over time, but then, you know, major efforts to restore over time as well. So you were kind of a, right in the middle of it there. Yeah, you know, I kind of think back and it was at the right time at the right place, because you're exactly right. There was a huge decline in the Chesapeake Bay in terms of its aquatic um, habitat and water quality. And so Maryland's been pretty progressive in finding ways to improve stormwater runoff and to think about all the things that almost we take for granted now as best practices they were beginning to employ back in the late 70s and early 80s. And when I got out of school and decided to start my own firm, the idea was that Maryland had just passed the Chesapeake Bay critical area legislation and they were requiring jurisdictions all around the Bay to develop critical area plans. And so sort of with my background in landscape architecture and hiring some ecologists and biologists, we went out and said, hey, we can do some of that work. And 
we're fortunate enough to be able to do a lot of that planning work for those jurisdictions, which then kind of helped us out in, in ways that could, we could apply those same types of planning processes to other jurisdictions. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about biohabitats and the culture of the company and you know some of the innovative projects you worked on. Yeah, it's, I've been really fortunate that we've got a great team of, of people that work with us. We started out, like I said, in Baltimore, doing a lot of work on the Chesapeake Bay, doing a lot of wetland restoration work. And that really began to expand in the 1990s when EPA sort of got wind of what we were doing and <clears throat> brought us up to the Great Lakes and started doing uh, restoration work throughout the Great Lakes as well. We've turned into sort of a multidisciplinary firm where we've got landscape architects, but we have ecologists and biologists and soil scientists and fluvial geomorphologists and water resource engineers. So we're able to take that science and apply it back to the landscape. And I think that's the, the value that landscape architecture program gave me was the idea that you work with a lot of diff different disciplines and a lot of different ideas and you find ways to apply it back to the landscape, right? Mm -hmm. So we were doing a lot of active and we still do a lot of active restoration work where we're restoring rivers, say out in the Pacific Northwest for salmon habitat. Uh, we're uh, down in the Louisiana and the Gulf Coast restoring wetlands there in the Chesapeake Bay and up in the Great Lakes. We do a lot of uh, conservation planning work throughout the country for rare, threatened, endangered species. And we get involved quite a bit these days in climate change adaptation, environmental justice issues, and ways to look at restoring biodiversity. What do you see as the challenges and the opportunities in South Carolina versus, you know, throughout the rest of the country? South Carolina has been really fortunate for a long time that we haven't had much overpopulation. So unlike the Chesapeake Bay, where you had major cities and a lot of population, uh, and which resulted in a lot of degradation of the water quality and habitat, up until very recently, South Carolina hasn't experienced that. But now they're beginning to. Now a lot of people want to move to South Carolina, whether it's in the upstate or the Midlands or down in the low country. And we're beginning to see a, a slight decline in water quality. We're seeing some of our landscape change pretty drastically because other, other areas of the country have experienced this and are now putting in best practices to remedy it. I think South Carolina can hopefully find a way to prevent a lot of that from happening and take the lessons learned from other parts of the country and apply it here. So whether it's living shorelines to help protect some of our coastal areas, whether it's preserving and conserving habitat like we're doing in the Ace Basin and other, other areas, or whether it's thinking about climate change and how that's going to impact our coastal areas due to sea level rise and storm surge, uh, there's parts of South Carolina that are already preparing for that. So it's great to see that we've got a head start here and can be thinking about these types of things early on. Biohabitats is multidisciplinary, um, you know, a number of different types of practitioners working together. And of course, when you're working on these projects, you know, with any partners, local governments, in the past, we worked a lot in silos, right? So how, even within... <laughs> biohabitats and then with partners, you know, and and folks that want to be doing these types of projects or, or need to be doing these types of projects. How do you kind of, you know, communicate these benefits, break down those silos and kind of get everybody working together on these projects? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, most of the design that happens, happens through architects, engineers, landscape architects or planners. And very rarely does a biologist or an ecologist come to the table during that design process or during those discussions. So first and foremost, I would say that almost every project should have a ecologist or biologist sitting at the table because it's really important that we take into consideration not only sort of ecological processes, but also biodiversity. So I would say first and foremost, have a biologist or ecologist at the table Second of all, I think it's really important to get sort of a multidisciplinary approach ingrained from the very beginning of our project. It's one thing to bring that type of expertise in when you're already have made some major decisions and then only you can only do so much after that. But having somebody sit at the table early on, I think is really important. 
And one way we see that manifesting itself is that there's this whole science out there of landscape ecology, where we know the number one cause of the loss of biodiversity is because of loss of habitat and habitat fragmentation. In other words, species, whether, whether it's flora or fauna, needs connectivity. It needs ways to move across the landscape. And so once we break that connectivity, once we fragment habitat, or once we reduce the size of habitat, we've already are playing catch up in terms of trying to protect or restore biodiversity. And having an ecologist or biologist at the table early on can be able to look at that type of patterns in the landscape and be able to help steer decisions about how that landscape may be developed or altered to do it in a way that actually protects or preserves or hopefully enhances biodiversity. And I've heard you say this before too, nature, you know, is intrinsically resilient and people have been using, you know, nature-based solutions for millennia, although it does seem like the practice has declined as people have become increasingly kind of out of touch with nature and your work can broadly be defined as nature-based solutions. But, you know, I'd like to hear how, how you define that term. Yeah, of course, we were all relying on nature up until about, you know, since the dawn of agriculture and and then specifically during industrialization a couple hundred years ago. Nature has always been there for us when we have lost touch with it. I think uh, for me, it's, it's a combination of, you know, there's the science of biomimicry. We're looking at species and we're looking at biological processes and how we can mimic those biological processes. And we sort of term it as eco-mimicry. So we've got ecological functions out there and how can we mimic those ecological functions? And, and really the only way or the, the, the primary way to do that is through restoring or enhancing nature. We can apply technology as tools to help us get there, but really technology in and of itself can't replace nature, right? So looking at the idea of biomimicry or ecomimicry, looking at the idea of biophilia, the idea that we all have this innate sort of longing for nature, and how can we embed nature and ecological processes into everything that we do. So there's so much we do to the landscape in terms of putting in infrastructure and disturbance and development, all for good reasons. But there are ways to do it where we can actually begin to mimic or enhance ecological functions as we go about developing the landscape or even in agriculture. You know, there's a big push right now for regenerative agriculture and eco agriculture. And so there are ways that we can live and work and play on the landscape that also then enhances and restores these ecological processes that we've impacted for a long time now. The trick is how do we change a mindset to get people to embrace that more fully, right? And and I think it's I think you're right, Liz. I think it's it's changing the mindset, but I also think that people, as you mentioned earlier, have lost touch with nature and don't even realize that those are things that we can do. And pretty simply and pretty inexpensively if we put our mind to it. It's not rocket science. It's ways to just live a little bit differently and better, I would say, with nature on the landscape than to continue to diminish, degrade, impact, and and fight nature. There are plenty of studies about the mental health benefits and just kind of happiness benefits of being in a green area, you know, so yes, the the multiple benefits you get from nature and nature-based solutions are underlooked, absolutely. And so there's a, a strong education component, I think, that's, um, you know, we all need to take on uh, to be able to get that information out there better. Interestingly, we, we worked on a project for the city of Atlanta several years ago. They said, look, we're going to continue to grow in population, and we know we need a transportation plan. We know we need a housing plan. We know we need to look at it, the economy and infrastructure, but they are also realized that they needed to look at the ecology of the area too. And they needed to find a way to weave in this idea of enhancing and protecting ecological function as they continue to grow as a city, which I found really interesting. Most cities don't think about that. Absolutely. So we ended up 
working on this urban ecology framework for the city of Atlanta that then uh, uh, meshes with their transportation and housing plan and their economic development plan. So there are ways now where cities are beginning to think about things like biodiversity and ecological function and ways that they can grow. And as I like to say, restore the future. It's not about looking back. It's about how can we look forward and restore these ecological processes and restore biodiversity in a way that accommodates our growth as we move forward. Yeah, that sounds like a great model to, you know, for other cities to to take on. And I, you know, and it also makes me think like the term resilience, right, is is a huge term. You could define it in so many ways, but the fact that like the city of Atlanta is incorporating so many different aspects, you know, and overlaying ecology over uh, over these other, you know, aspects that they're considering. And that's kind of how I think about resilience too, right? Like what are the multiple benefits and the multiple facets of it? It's not just ecology. It's not just communities. It's, you know, it's not just economics. It's all overlaid. And I think we're finding, right, with with impacts from climate change, how weather patterns are, are changing, and that being resilient against some of these extreme weather conditions really means looking back at nature and looking at how nature does that. How is nature adapted to fire? How is nature adapted to hurricanes? How is nature adapted to flooding? And then how do we then go back and retrofit and adapt our, our landscape in a way that mimics those, again, those natural processes? makes me think about we just had a close call with a hurricane and you know when you think about landscaping right people plant plants plants along the coast that don't fit here and when strong winds come through for a hurricane they're the first ones to go down and you know but people have lost so much touch with native plants and the native landscape that they don't realize that yeah that along with draining (laughs) a lot of draining of wetlands and and building in low-lying areas right so it's a combination of our the patterns we put down on the landscape in terms of how we develop the landscape and also then what we add or take away from the landscape as we're doing that. So all those need to work and work together. So you've talked about, you know, big landscape scale restoration and projects, but then also, you know, urban work and, you know, nature-based solutions are across the scale, right? They're site-specific solutions up to landscape scale solutions. And I've heard kind of a push and pull about, you know, what are the most effective solutions to focus on? And, you know, should it only be landscape scale or how effective are rain gardens in an urban environment? And I just love your thoughts, Mina, maybe on how how you see that. And is it a and or? Is it a everything should be done? Or? I, I think the two are connected. In other words, I think that Without one, the other one is going to fail. Uh, so, so I'm a big believer that first and foremost, you need sort of landscape scale projects like the Ace Basin, like Francis Marion Forest, you need, like the Green Print Program and Greenway Program that South Carolina has. You need to find ways to establish sort of that overall landscape scale framework of greenways and, and, and uh, areas for habitat and biodiversity to move across the landscape, especially with climate change and how species are gonna begin migrating both north and upslope, right? So we need that to anchor us. And then within that, within developed areas, we need all those other nature-based solutions. We need living shorelines, we need rain gardens, we need bioretention areas. We need, you know, green infrastructure. We need to think about ways to create, say, living walls along coastlines or, or landscape with native plants and the correct zoning and building codes to allow these types of nature-based features to occur. Um, but if you have one without the other, if it, I think all those things you do in an urban area to reconnect with nature, if you don't have that large regional network, then you're just going to end up with these sort of postage stamps all over the place. And you're still going to look at at potentially a a great loss of biodiversity. And because they're not connected, then the resiliency of those areas goes down, right? It's Mm -hmm. decreased. Nature inherently is all connected. And that's why it's so resilient. 
And if we're not connected to that larger landscape, then 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 our resiliency in facing these other sort of uh, uh, unnatural or now more natural, uh, but extreme weather patterns is going to be a lot tougher than if we were connected region. In your large landscape scale projects, do you work to build in communication, education, material, you know, at those sites to to better connect people to those projects? Yeah, you know, one project that we just finished working on, in fact, with the Nature Conservancy out in Denver was looking at the whole front range of Colorado and looking at how species are moving up and down the front range and the connectivity there and the urbanization patterns that are occurring and how could uh, both, uh, how could we accommodate that urbanization but do it in a really smart way that still allows corridors and paths for species to move both up and down slope of the front range, but also um, north and south along the front range. And in working with the Nature Conservancy and other other, uh, local partners out there, one of the primary components of that work was tools to communicate that, right? To communicate that to the public, communicate that to the different municipalities that, that are located up and down the front range in a way that they could see how they're part of this collective whole and that if they're doing their part, then it really, you know, the, the sum of the parts is greater than the, the parts um, of themselves. And so communication was a big issue there and how we communicated out all that work. My argument sometimes for the smaller solutions in urban areas is not just, you know, for the stormwater management and the you know, native plant um, benefits, but the education piece of just getting people aware that, you know, this type of work is happening, even if it's on this small scale to hopefully, like you say, connection, but then connect them, you know, to larger landscape projects elsewhere. Um, Just because I think people can get so removed from you know, big land protection, that's not something that's in, you know, a lot of people's minds and, and, the, and the benefits of that and these important corridors and all these things that you've mentioned. So, um, you know, better finding a way to kind of connect those small urban projects uh, with these these larger landscape projects. Yeah, I think there's, there's two um, scales that we've seen pretty effective. One is we do, when we do a lot of work, we also invite a lot of schools and school kids out to, you know, teach them about the work that we're doing. So you're hitting the younger generation, which is always good because, um, you know, as they as they get older and go through school and get out and have families or whatever, they've had that sort of experience with what is what does restoration mean and, you know, protecting the environment. So that really is helpful. I think on the other scale, what we're finding is that getting ingrained in the zoning processes of local municipalities and the comprehensive planning processes of local municipalities and talking about how important nature-based approaches are and how important biodiversity and ecology and climate adaptation is during those processes really helps set the stage then as those municipalities plan for the future and, and, and grow uh, so those types of experiences, I think, really help. And I would encourage, you know, anybody out there in the design profession or that's listening to this podcast that if they have that they have the time to get involved in those processes, that's where it really starts. Absolutely. And, you know, South Carolina just recently passed a law to require a resilience element in local comprehensive plans. Um, So all the counties and larger municipalities will now be rolling that out. So, you know, it's a great time to get involved in that. Um, What do you think some key components are in a comprehensive plan like that to make it more actionable and not just, you know, sit on a shelf? Yeah, I think um, of several things. One is, first of all, think about those large landscape patterns. Think about where habitat is, where connectivity either needs to be protected and or reestablished. Mostly, you know, in South Carolina, we can think about that along some of the major waterways that we have here in the low country, um, specifically in the low country, but throughout the state. 
So I, I would say first and foremost, that any county going through a comprehensive plan, look at sort of the ecological framework and look at ways to protect and enhance that ecological framework. Then you're working within that ecological framework. And then beyond that, it's again, thinking about ways to bring in nature-based approaches. And that's pretty, you know, whether it's a new road and you've got to cross several streams, how can you cross those streams in a, an environmentally sensitive, ecologically and enhanced way? And also from a building pattern standpoint, if there are ways to design subdivision layouts and look at ways to service those subdivisions, but you can do it in a more ecologically sensitive and nature-based approach, that helps as well. So I think that there's there's all types of levels that can be built into a comprehensive plan that really speak to enhancing biodiversity looking at environmental injustices, thinking about climate adaptation, and really leading with nature-based approaches where they're appropriate. You know, what comes after that in the design and implementation of these types of projects is the the workforce capacity to be able to design and implement and maintain, uh, you know, those types of projects, uh, which I often hear are are challenges. And, you know, I, I love to hear that Biohabitats has such a diverse staff, you know, and I think is very strongly developing workforce capacity in these types of um, fields. And I just wonder your thoughts on that. And, you know, is that a, is that a big challenge? And how do we tackle something like that? I think it is a challenge. I think it's, um, you know, we've worked on projects where a local municipality said, well, yeah, we could, we could put in this native landscape here, but we don't really have crews that know how to maintain it, right? Uh, or yeah, we want to pass this ordinance to require all native planting, but we're not sure that uh, the nursery industry and the landscape industry is, is poised to to uh, kind of switch gears and, and learn about that. So I think there is a challenge there. I think we're beginning to see um, municipalities and, and other entities think about ways of training their crews to uh, maintain nature-based approaches. We're looking at, you know, there certainly from a professional standpoint, we're seeing more and more people come out of school with with a background in, in environmental engineering and whether it's landscape architecture combined with other degrees in biology or ecology or, or conservation work. So they understand that it's not just one or the other, that we're looking at ways to how, how to apply these types of uh, nature-based approaches to the landscape. So that's really good to see. And so, yeah, I think we're slowly starting to see the workforce switch over or, or transition into this, but it still will take time and effort. And I think that there's still a lot of training that needs to be done because we look at managing a nature-based approach different than we might a conventional landscape. So there's this whole science and, and, and management approach called adaptive management, where we're looking at nature-based approaches and learning from how they're functioning and how they're working and how do we adapt them as we move forward and into the future in a way that still provides this sort of inherent resiliency in them. And I would say like, a, a you know, mostly a conventional landscape, probably the, you know, the year or two years after you put it in, it's the most resilient and it and because you're not using native plants, it has a a um, certain lifespan and certain resiliency that begins begins to degrade over time versus a native landscape does just the opposite. In the beginning, it's a little bit more vulnerable, but as it grows in and, 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 and establishes, it becomes actually more resilient because it's, adapt it, it's, it's natural to that landscape and adaptive to that landscape. So we need to be thinking and sort of reverse our our management approach where some of these nature-based approaches might need more management up front, but once they're established, they need a lot less, where a more conventional approach would be just the opposite. And that can be a hard shift, particularly in a reactive time post-storm. You know, I think I, I looked throughout the low country and a lot of our approach to stormwater management is we create these open water bodies right, um, to store stormwater, or we 
we have in the past gone in and drained wetlands and dug a deep hole and created a water body, which is a great sort of an aesthetic amenity for a lot of subdivisions and homeowners. But what we're finding now is it's becoming harder and harder, they're becoming harder and harder to maintain because those types of features were not natural in the landscape here. And so if we're gonna get back to a natural based approach, we need to be thinking about, well, how do we manage floodwaters and stormwaters using a more natural landscape element like a forested wetland or a scrub shrub wetland? And uh, how do we mimic sort of those natural functions and how we store stormwater and floodproof our homes and our streets and, and our infrastructure in a way that's a lot more natural? Which takes a more proactive approach, which, you know, puts weight on those comprehensive plans. Uh, the step down from that is our building standards and building codes, right? Um, once you get through sort of comprehensive planning and zoning, then how do you uh, go in and change your building codes to reinforce that? So mm -hmm. it flows all the way through the system. Yep. Again, everything's connected, all those different facets. Yep. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think there's a transition over time. And even from the young age, we're seeing kind of, you know, excitement um, from K through 12 and up. And we, we, the Nature Conservancy recently installed some rain gardens in the town of Andrews, South Carolina, and one was at the high school there. And uh, we gave a presentation to the students about green stormwater infrastructure and rain gardens and how they work. And then they came out and helped us, helped us build the rain garden. But the the light I saw in their eyes when they realized that that could be a job opportunity in the future, you know, doing this type of landscape architecture um, was really exciting to see. Some of the students were really inspired by that because they just had never considered that, you know, being an option for them before. And they really enjoyed that. So I think for a lot of people that look at this and say, well, what can I really do to help the situation from an environmental perspective? And gosh, could I actually make a living out of it? Right. Mm -hmm. I think there are more, much more opportunities now than there were 10 years ago. And certainly 40 years ago when I started, where the whole idea of restoration ecology and landscape um, or ecological restoration was just, you know, sort of budding forth. So Yes, you've been a trailblazer and we appreciate that for sure. When you talk about, you know, focusing on some of our river corridors or some of our key um ecological connectors in, in South Carolina, that spans jurisdictions, right? So we've talked about like comprehensive plans, but those are within a county. Um, have you, you know, worked multi-jurisdiction partners before and had some successes of how to, you know, navigate that aspect of trying to do these larger scale landscape restoration across county lines, for example? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's uh, challenging for sure. Uh, but again, back to that example in um, the Front Range of Colorado, and more recently, we've been working up in Sandusky Bay uh, with the city of Toledo and the county and other jurisdictions up there on ways to look at improving water quality and improving Sandusky Bay. They've lost a lot of wetlands, unlike or, or much like many water bodies across the U.S., uh, and so finding ways to restore those wetlands and restore water quality that, you know, is a vast watershed that drains to Sandusky Bay that encompasses many different counties and municipalities. <laughs> and so, again, it's, it's, it's looking at it from a regional perspective, but having sort of uh, one focus and getting everybody on board. So sort of the people in the upper watershed understand their impacts to the to the um, river and, and, and downstream, and that even downstream people understand what's happening upstream and how that, how, how what they're actually doing downstream can migrate back up. So I think it's all connected, whether it's actually in the water or on the landscape and finding ways for everybody to come together and talk about that. You know, we, we've done that with national parks. We've done that with other types of corridors. And there's no reason why we could, can't do it on a watershed scale or a whole river basin scale. I know Louisiana has some watershed-based plans. And, and there's been talk about that in South Carolina, too, you know, having these watershed-level plans. And I think that could be a way to have that main focus and um, have multi-jurisdictions working together. 
I know the Mid-Atlantic region is, again, uh, because a lot of the focus of the Chesapeake Bay early on, they've done a lot of watershed planning um, that's crossed jurisdictions in the Mid-Atlantic area, whether it's New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. Um, water uh, watershed plans looking at water quality, looking at flooding, um, looking at biodiversity. And so, yeah, I think there's, I think South Carolina would really benefit from looking at watershed planning per se on that level, on that regional level, than just a jurisdiction. I agree. And, you know, we've seen such extreme impacts over the past eight years now or so, you know, of these, you know, massive floods coming down through these watersheds. Um, I think that's raised the attention of that issue a good bit. And, you know, the reality that even water in North Carolina is coming down to South Carolina and staying in people's houses for days. We've talked about biodiversity a little bit, um, but, you know, number of times I've heard you say that, you know, biodiversity loss is maybe a more important issue than the climate change impacts we're experiencing. So do you want to expand on that anymore? And, you know, how your work addresses that or what you see as the, you know, big steps or, you know, needs uh, to working towards that issue? Yeah, I would. That, thank you. Um, that's been a really big focus of mine personally and, and certainly of biohabitats. You know, when we think about biodiversity, just to sort of define that word, it's it, most people think of biodiversity as different types of plants and different species of animals. And really biodiversity has three different levels. One, we can think about species, the different diversity of species out there, but two, there's sort of a diversity of ecosystems um, across the United States and across the world. And, and those ecosystems are really important. And then if we sort of jump back to species, within species, there's genetic diversity within species. So a red maple, say, in South Carolina is not has a different genetic makeup than, say, a red maple out in Ohio or Indiana. And so it's really important that we protect and preserve the different genetic makeups of these species as well. So we can think about genetics, we can think about species, and we can think about ecosystems, right? When we think about biodiversity. And we're losing we're losing ecosystems, like coral reefs are, are, are declining. Uh, we're losing species. In fact, we there's a decline of over 68% of populations of mammals, fish, birds, and reptiles and amphibians um, over the last 50 years, which is huge. And we expect to lose about 46% of biodiversity by the year 2050, and that's not that far away. So that's really um, huge. And I would say that the loss of biodiversity, and I think many scientists are beginning to argue this now, is actually greater, will have a greater impact on us than climate change. And that's not to say we shouldn't begin or stop fighting climate change or addressing climate change. But even if we were just to address climate change, we still have this decline in biodiversity. And we need to be thinking about what we can do to stop that extinction rate and begin restoring habitat for different species. And so a lot of our work has been really focused on biodiversity. And I would make the argument that if we work on biodiversity and reverse that trend and and restore the landscape, then actually what we're doing is we're doing everything we need to be doing for climate change too. Hmm. Um, so so if we use biodiversity as, as our measure, then we'll also be working uh, concurrently on climate change issues in terms of resiliency, in terms of, of uh, climate adaptation, that sort of thing, climate or carbon sequestration. So I would argue that biodiversity is really what our metrics should be, and that all the other ecological processes um, will fall into place if we if we actually begin looking at biodiversity. So you know, a lot of scientists are saying we're going through this sixth great mass extinction right now with biodiversity and it's basically human cause. And, and really, if we go back, it's habitat fragmentation, the loss of habitat are the number one causes of biodiversity loss. Actually, climate change is sort of a distant fifth right now in terms of impacts. So even 
even with climate change, while we're beginning to see impacts to biodiversity, they're, they're very minimal compared to just losing habitat and losing connectivity habitat. So those are the two things that we're really focused on at Biohabitats is how can we preserve habitat and protect habitat that's already there and how can we reconnect habitat that's already been fragmented. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, it makes sense to me, you know, addressing biodiversity would would address climate impacts and, and others. And again, it's this disconnection of people from nature and this complete probably lack of awareness for a lot of people that, you know, biodiversity loss is uh, such a major issue for us. Yeah, I think one thing that, you know, with climate change, we hear so much about it in the news and we see these weather patterns develop and, and you know, we can kind of point to what's happening there and we can measure the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and look at that. It's a lot harder to measure biodiversity and it's somewhat invisible to us day to day. And we don't have a good recollection of, you know, when we were kids or when our parents were kids, what what biodiversity was like back then. So we lose that sort of perspective. And and so it's sort of undercover and we need to bring it bring it more to the forefront and really talk about biodiversity and how we are losing it and how how it will impact our lives and our kids' lives and our grandkids' lives into the future. And mm-hmm. once a species goes extinct, it's forever, right? We'll never get that species back. Unlike climate change, we have a chance to halt the amount of carbon that we're putting in the atmosphere and reverse some of those trends that are happening. But biodiversity, once we lose a species, it, it's gone forever and we can't reverse that trend. We really need to be thinking about how we can bring again, protect and restore uh, habitat and biodiversity. Tell me a little bit as well about your work and biohabitat's work around environmental injustices. Yeah, it's really interesting because I would say about 20 years ago, when most of our work, while environmental justice has has certainly been around since the 60s, um, where there's been calls for looking at hazardous waste and that sort of thing being placed in marginalized communities or or industry being placed near marginalized communities that are polluting the air or water. Really, the, the sort of practice of ecological restoration and conservation planning only recently has begun to ad- address those issues as well and incorporate them into what they're doing. And I would say that right now, almost every project that we're working on has an environmental justice issue associated with it. In other words, we're looking at making sure that any marginalized population that we're working with or near or incorporated in has a, has a say in what we're doing. Also, that their needs are being addressed along with everybody else's needs. So, for example, we do a lot of river and stream restoration work for municipalities. And typically, it's, it's work where capital improvement funds are, are targeted towards streams or rivers that may not be the most polluted, but certainly have the most vocal advocates for restoring those areas. But if we were to lay sort of an environmental justice lens over top of some of these municipalities and say, okay, where are the most polluted lands that match up with marginalized communities that may not get that type of government investment in those communities because they are marginalized, that maybe some of those streams or rivers are more in need of restoration and and improvements in water quality than other areas. Mm-hmm. So we're beginning to see that sort of analysis of looking at environmental injustices associated with marginalized communities, whether they're communities of African-Americans, Blacks, Hispanics, whether they're communities of economically disadvantaged, uh, whatever, and looking at ways where they have access to green space, they have access to ecological processes that make their communities more resilient, more rich, more robust, and that they're not taking the burden of 
environmental pollution, whether that's water pollution, air pollution, soil pollution, you know, in their in their neighborhoods and communities, and trying to look at ways to restore those ecological processes and and mitigate those environmental injustices that they have. I, I know that you know you also do a lot of community engagement and outreach in the work that you do and uh, make sure that the voices are heard of, you know, everybody in the community. You know, I'm still learning a lot about this, but I think we're all learning that there's, you know, this sort of systemic racism that's built into how our landscapes have been planned and developed over the last 100, 150 years, right? And so unraveling that, learning about that, peeling away the onion, unraveling what's been done is going to take a lot of time and effort and and I think courage on a lot of people's parts to think about that and how do we begin investing in ways that begin to unravel that systemic racism and those land patterns that we've developed because I think all that then leads to environmental justice issues. And if, if we're just going to sort of work around the edges, then we're, we're really not going to address the what's at heart of those issues. It's going to take time. Like all restoration, you know, it's taken us 150, 200 years to get where we are. With all restoration, it's probably going to take us 100, 150 years to get back out of, of the impacts that we've had. And I think the same goes with environmental injustices. Hopefully we can speed that up. But we still need to work at unraveling sort of those land patterns and, and the decisions we still make from a zoning and comprehensive planning standpoint that we don't even realize are still perpetuating some of those issues. Big picture. Let me say I can write you a check right now for a billion dollars. <laughs> How would you use it to support nature? So I think your billion dollars is way too low. <laughs> Sorry. So, so, so I, 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 you know, I, I often go back to our budget for the military, and we spend seven hundred and seventy some billion dollars a year on the military, and a billion dollars is only like point oh 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 one percent of Fair our enough. military budget, right? So if we were even to spend one percent of our military budget, which is seven billion dollars a year. <laughs> on environmental work, then then we're talking, right? And then then I think that we are looking at, at serious money towards a really serious issue that I would say has as much to do with our country's economic and social vulnerability than outside threats do as well, right? So gosh, let's take 1% of our military budget and apply it to environmental conservation and restoration. So now we're talking about $7 billion. And I think that, you know, first and foremost, we need to find ways to build up sort of that nature-based infrastructure that we've lost or has been degraded. And again, on a regional scale, but then also on a more local municipality urban scale too. And so I would love to see, you know, a coordinated effort across ecosystems across bioregions to do that, because I think that's where the planning really starts, whether it's watersheds, river basins, bioregions, eco-regions within the United States, and then look at ways to disperse that money out to local organizations, local efforts, local initiatives, because I think what we've always said that, you know, um, it really, we need both from a grassroots level and a local level working up but we also, I think, from, especially from an ecological perspective, we need to be thinking about how everything is connected, how everything strengthens and, and works together. And so we need to have that sort of overall coordinated plan to make sure that what we're doing on a local level fits into this larger puzzle. So that, yeah. you know, I would look at dispersing the money that way. But yeah. let's start with $7 billion. Okay. Okay. Good point. We'll start fundraising. All right. Right. (laughs) So for our podcast listeners, what is something that we can all do to positively impact our environment? Keep doing what you're doing from a local level and a personal level. But again, if there are ways that you can get involved in your local planning board or go to zoning meetings or go to comprehensive planning meetings or 
or um, think about ways to connect landscapes and to protect areas. Those are sort of the number one things that I think we can all do, both from a climate change, climate adaptation perspective and from a biodiversity perspective. So, and help your neighbor, right? So from an environmental justice uh, perspective, help your neighbors, help your, your neighboring communities because everybody needs to be working together here. And what gives you hope for the future? This podcast, the fact that we're working <laughs> That we're working on this, the fact that we're talking about nature-based approaches, that you know, we see a lot of these ideas um, coming together now, and it's becoming really, really important, and that um, we are beginning to make headway. And like I said, we can't expect results or to turn this around overnight. It's going to take generations to do that. But I really like the idea that there's this interest and and realization and recognition that hey, gosh, we need to be thinking about how nature works, how nature does this, and and how do we then reapply that to the landscape in a way that helps us from, a, again, cultural, social, economic perspective going forward. Well, good. Well, Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, you really are a trailblazer in this, and I draw a lot of inspiration from you and learn so much from you every time I talk with you. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Liz. And it's great to be on, on this podcast and, and um, great to be a part of, of uh, the nature-based exchange with South Carolina. Thanks for tuning in. Conversing with Nature is a podcast of the Nature-Based Exchange and is supported by funding from Honda. To learn more, visit our website at www.naturebasedexchange.org. I'll be back next time with another guest so we can continue learning from nature. Until then, go make some memories outside.